You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Uh, we are recording. Hey there, Robert. How are you? Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? Doing well. Glenn Lowry here, the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. And I'm talking to Mr. Bloggingheads.tv. That would be one Robert Wright, who is the um, entrepreneur who got this whole show uh, off the road here at Blogging Heads. If I were an entrepreneur, I'd be rich, but I did get the show. I did. Well, you, I did. I was co-founder with Mickey Kaus and uh, and Greg Dingle. And, you and, should and, be rich. I mean, this is a social good. Uh, <laughs> people get paid for this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not sure a, exactly how to do it, but you should be rich. In a, just, in a just society, Glenn, I'm sure we would both be richer than we are. Anyway, Bob and I are uh, doing this thing where we're trading – uh, visitations on each other's platform. Uh, I have been a guest at, uh, was it The Meaning of Life or was it The Right Show? It was The Right Show on bloggingheads.tv. The Right Show, my show, actually appears on both, depending on the on the subject matter, but it's a unified podcast feed, The Right Show. And, and you you are always on Blogging Heads TV. Not that you don't occasionally venture into Meaning of Life topics. I have on occasion. Um uh, and uh, I'm returning the favor by inviting Bob and hosting him here at the Glenn Show, uh, which I should mention is sponsored by the Watson Institute for International Public Affairs at Brown, uh, where I'm a professor. So here we are, Bob. Um, so what are we talking about? I, you know, you're the interviewer. I just want to uh, say how proud I am to, to finally be on the Glenn Show. I feel I've arrived. <laughs> That's kind my, of you my, my mother would be so proud. <laughs> Uh, you've become a big thing. The Glenn Show has become a big thing. Uh, you- well, I'm I'm happy to hear it. I don't actually have the metrics on hand to to vouch for that, but you're saying that uh, you're people big. are coming to the site and they're, they're we're big, we're big. I'm doing my best, um, and I'm happy to be associated. I should say in return, I can return the favor. I'm happy to be associated with BloggingHeads.tv, which has changed my life. It's opened up a whole new. Uh, avenue of activity for me here in the podcast land. I'm not sure I would have been doing it, but for serendipity that led me into this, uh, into this company. Um, and uh, now, you know, uh, with relatively little effort, I mean, one does have to read books that you're going to discuss and maybe do a little bit of research for an uh, interview that you're going to have, but relatively little effort. Um, I'm able to, you know, talk about ideas and, uh, uh, politics and issues and uh, opinions and uh, get an audience, get feedback, uh, get uh, notice. Um, so, yeah. Um, Be recognized in remote corners of the world, I hear. I mean, I've heard that from you. No. It doesn't happen to me. doesn't happen to me. My show's not as big as The Glenn Show, but it happens to you. It actually does happen to me. I mean, and I could go through it, but I've been through it. I mean, I've been in, you know, Australia. I've been in England. Uh, you know, people come up and say, hey, I know you. You're Glenn Lowry. Uh, and they know me from the Glenn Show. So, uh, okay, so we're happily uh, joined here uh, in in the uh, Blogging Heads Enterprise. Um, but I'm wondering what it looks like from your uh, from your perspective, uh, Bob. You must have pride. Uh, what impact do you think that you've been having? We have been having uh, with this uh, with this venture. Um, how does it relate to the other innovative things going on in the world of opinion uh, journalism and, you know, uh, online uh, uh, commentary and so forth like that? I'm, I'm asking you for your weight, your yeah. sage perspective. 
uh, as an well, entrepreneur? Well, it was certainly more innovative when it started than it is now. I mean, I started it, I co-founded it in 2005 with, with Mickey Kaus and Greg Dingle, who was a tech guy. Um, that was, that was uh, four, 14 years ago, more than 14 years ago. Um, and, you know, at that point, you couldn't even do what we're doing now. People didn't, they didn't have built-in webcams. We didn't, you didn't have good broadband. You couldn't just like have a video conversation with a, with a person like anywhere in America. And in fact, originally, um, the, the two people could not see each other. <laughs> and, and, and the way we did it, I mean, if you, if you search your memory, you'll remember when we did it this way, um, that, uh, each person would record their own local video file. They'd be having a phone conversation. They could hear yeah. each other, of course. And then we would upload the two videos to a server and splice them together. I do remember um, that. And, um, and at that point, it, it was a, it was a new thing. The name Blogging Heads, uh, may also not sound cutting edge, but at that point, of course, it was a play on Talking Heads, but it was a reference to the fact that, um, there were all these bloggers, you know, blogging was in its heyday, yeah. kind of early heyday almost, uh, but, but heyday, and, uh, and there were all these bloggers that, that were not, prominent enough to like get on cable tv people hadn't seen them and so one thing we did was put a bunch of bloggers on uh on video for the first time and now a number of them uh are on cable. chris hayes his first video uh thing ari melber uh you know a lot of them went on to actually do that kind of stuff um so you know, it's not, I mean, we're not exactly on the, uh, and I, I would say we were also an early podcast because there was always a downloadable audio file as well as the video. And, and today, today most people imbibe it via audio podcast, not, not video. So it's, you know, it's been a long running podcast. I'm, uh, I guess, uh, in terms of what I'm proud of, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm proud that, that I think people here are exposed to views other than just the views they will see on cable TV. You are certainly a good example of that, uh, as you're well aware, right? I mean, that's almost your identity, right? <laughs> Is that you're, 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 uh, <clears throat> you, you and John, especially you and other people too, have conversations, uh, that might not be welcome on mainstream media. I've had conversations that wouldn't be welcome on mainstream media. Uh, that's by no means all of what blogging heads is. Uh, we have, you know, other, um, I mean, for example, Bill Sherritt and Matt Lewis who do the DMZ, uh, they're not radicals, but one is on the right, one is on the left. They have a civil conversation every week. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that itself these days, I think, is kind of a public service, uh, yeah. you know, g- given how polarized things are. So I don't know. Tell me when I've gone on too long. Um, uh. You're doing fine. Uh, I, I was just going to say my identity is a is iconoclasm and uh, pushing against the grain and saying things that others wouldn't say. And at one level, I want to take pride in that. Yeah, that's me. You know, I'm out there all, you know, on the limb, you know, I'm brave, I'm bold. On the other hand, I'd like to think that I wish that my identity would be, well, you know, he's a Ivy League professor and he's a distinguished economist and he's read a lot of books. He expresses himself very well. He has interesting things to say about the issues. He's not very predictable. I don't mind not being predictable. I don't mind, you know, going outside the lines a, a little bit uh, now and then. But I hate to be thought of primarily as a bomb thrower, an iconoclast, a naysayer, a curmudgeon, a contrarian. Uh, 
because I feel that maybe that doesn't take me sufficiently seriously. Hmm. Maybe it pigeonholes me and is more of a kind of ad hominem reaction to what I'm saying. You know, who is this guy who's talking to me? Oh, he's one of those. And then if I may say so, Bob, being black doesn't make this whole thing any easier. Not that I'm complaining, not that I'm crying and whining, but I'm just saying, you know, Mm -hmm. There are people out there who will say, oh, you know, you're a black guy and you're saying these things. And then there's a whole another dimension of reprobation that comes in the train of that observation. So I, I chafe a little bit, but I guess I've earned I've earned this uh, characterization. Well, I mean, this isn't the place to talk strategy, but if you'd like us to steer you toward a new identity, I'm sure we can think <laughs> think about a series of guests. I mean, now that you've got the the visibility you know, sky's the limit. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll have some of my highly paid uh, marketing experts um, get it, get in touch with you. But you actually do. I mean, you do have a, a big stage now, and you, and you could you could have, uh, you know, you could have various kinds of people on, have various kinds of conversations. But well, I wonder whether, as a proprietor of uh, our our collective enterprise here, you have any thoughts about about exactly this branding question. Uh, so the Glenn Show has this uh, reputation. Glenn is. Uh, we've been saying, come on, we've been uh, soft-pedaling the thing here. Glenn is a contrarian. Glenn is someone who's talks against it. They're really talking about Glenn being a conservative or too conservative or more conservative than, I don't know, some, you know, nor- normal uh, position. And and uh, I'm, I'm wondering whether you worry – and, and it's just an honest question that uh, because you re- you must read the comments. I mean, you know, you're the guy in charge over there at Blogging Heads. You must look at what people are saying. I read the comments, and a lot of them are, why don't we get some black people out there that have a different point of view than this guy? It's an echo chamber. Um, he's always saying the same thing, which is that the social justice warriors and the Black Lives Matter people and the ta cultures of the world and the Ava Du Vernays and the uh, uh, Nicole Hannah Joneses of the weather, blah, 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 are wrong about, you know, and Al Sharpton's a bad guy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's, they're always saying this, he is, th- that they say I am. Um, and, you know, we deserve to have a more diverse uh, uh, airing of these uh, race-related views. So are you worried about that? Well, I mean, first of all, I'd say, of course, I naturally tend to think of it from, you know, uh, from a, uh, the perspective of blogging heads as a whole, and one thing I think is, well, there's various other perspectives on blogging heads as a whole, uh, you know, to the extent that I get blowback that's comparable to your blowback, it has to do with uh, foreign policy issues that are identified more as left than right, even though on foreign policy, it's a little more complicated than that. But yeah. so, so I, d- I don't think anybody would look at the network as a whole and say, uh Oh, it's a right-wing enterprise. That said, I, I understand uh, why. And now, I should say, I try to counterbalance that by having neoconservatives on in conversation with me. And, and I think you would be happy to do the corresponding thing. And the truth is, you have issued at least some invitations that have not been warmly received, right, right to people you have been critical of. And and I, I think maybe we should buckle down and work harder to to find some people who fit that uh, perspective who will come on and talk to you. But it's not as if you uh, have yourself rejected that prospect. No, that's that's correct. Uh, perhaps I haven't tried as hard as I 
should and you know if you can't get a Ta-Nehisi Coulter and Nicole Hannah-Jones then maybe you should go for it and I don't want to name anybody <laughs> you, you don't want to say who is second tier <laughs> but such people exist I think we can stipulate that <laughs> and, yeah. and get some people on and, and mix it up a little bit uh, I have done that in a uh, kind of uh, uh, you know circuitous way by <laughs> inviting my son, Glenn the <laughs> second. Well, that's a good example, show. actually. Yeah. That you know, was and great. we've that, had that, very that, robust. That, that was great. That was great stuff. I mean, not just from the crass perspective of wanting a lot of people to watch, you know, having high traffic. It was just the kind of conversation you're not going to see many places. And you've had, you've had more than one. Yeah, we have, and we'll have, we'll have more. I, I think we are going to, you know, stick our necks out and talk in public more. You should have been at Thanksgiving dinner. There was never a dull moment, you know. I'll bet. Yeah. (laughs) I've got some family reunions I should invite you to, too. I have three siblings who voted for Trump. I see. Uh, Three? Yeah, three. Although we we actually, at the family reunions, we just avoid discussing the subject entirely because we all know that, you know, the place would go up in smoke very rapidly. Are you comfortable with the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, which is the way I invariably introduce myself and John? Uh, you mean comfortable with that introduction? The black guys, and black- yeah, I think you should trademark it. It's good with that branding, with that uh, well bringing of blogging heads into this uh, kind of very freighted and fraught, you know, think, national I, discourse about race. I think you're absolutely raising questions that should be raised and aren't being raised enough. Like you, I wish that uh, you could more often get somebody who disagrees with you sharply uh, and whom you've criticized uh, to, uh, you know, to join you in in the conversation. Um, Because that's what's, for one thing, that's what's most lacking in America today broadly. And, um, uh, and, you know, I think we could do it. I think it's good that we're having this conversation because maybe we'll both vow to actually brainstorm about uh, people who could come on but I, no, I think you're you're uh, you're raising very valuable questions, and I'm um, and I you know I have more than once found myself in agreement with you. Um, the uh, now don't put me on the spot by making me no I'm not <laughs> make me elaborate here. But uh, <laughs> now you know lately you you've gotten particularly edgy, and I think we'll have time to talk about that. But we don't yes. need to ju- we don't need to jump into that right now. Um, you know I I think um, you know look as just as a liberal and as uh, you know uh, somebody who hopes that the Democrats will win the uh, next election, I worry that um, identity politics uh, is uh, going to become a significant uh, problem for Demo- Democrats politically, if in no other sense. Leave aside the merits of the question. I think um, it's tactically uh, challenging to spend um, – to make identity politics too much of the identity of the Democratic Party in the eyes of, you know, your kind of swing voters or whoever you're trying to to attract – um, and, uh, yeah, I, and, and, you know, I mean, as for, I mean, you mentioned your race, uh, I, it's interesting. I suppose in some ways, it, you said it's harder for you 
to be black and, and be addressing these issues. And I assume everyone knows what we're talking about. I assume we're talking mainly to, a, 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 you know, an audience familiar with your views. But you've, you've challenged kind of, um, well, let's identity politics, to, to say the least. And um, I'm critical of affirmative action. And I am far from being persuaded about reparations. And I'm very worried that the consequences of the Black Lives Matter movement might also be a diminution of public safety in some urban communities because of the way that police are responding to the political environment that's been created. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm generally dissatisfied with the quality of intellectual and political leadership amongst African-American ranks, which I think is mired in a vision of the country and of the conditions of people of color, I should say, of African-Americans specifically, that is anachronistic and just inadequate intellectually and politically to the challenges that we face just that, to, and, you know, give yeah, a short compass of my economy. In, in a nutshell. And yeah. you're saying that being black makes it harder. Um, from my point of view, it may be easier that you're black. I mean, I would think from your point of view, in terms of the kind of blowback you get, is it too simple to say that the question of your race is a question of whether you're going to get called a racist or an Uncle Tom? I mean, if you're white and you're saying this stuff, you're going to get called a racist, right? Well, something like that. It's a question of motive. You know, there'll be something like, well, he's always criticizing these people. Why doesn't he criticize those people? Uh, there'll be a he must be jealous because some people are getting more attention than he's getting and they have different views than himself. And that's somehow tied to the fact of who is the you know, who is going to be recognized by the cultural barons at the magazines and the websites and the newspapers as uh, the most, uh, you know, foremost commentators on questions about race and uh, people accuse mm-hmm. me of jealousy and of disloyalty. They'll, they'll say, you know, uh, you're, you're betraying your own people. You wash dirty linen in public. You, right. you take too much relish in your criticism, whatever the merits of them, et cetera. Yeah. And I, it is, I'm sure it is hard. I think it would be, hard, I, I think you would find yourself getting a painful blowback. Uh, if you were white, it would sound, it would be, they would use different words. Um, but I, I can't know. Um, either way. I mean, I have kind of my own version of this again. It's not that it's comparable. Uh, I don't want to, uh, overly, um, dramatize my own situation, but I say things about foreign policy that, that, uh, where you, you get a sense that, um, some of the blowback is not merely substantive criticism. Some of it is, is kind of speech policing attempts to intimidate you, you know, and, and, uh, maybe I'll give you some examples later, but, um, you know, it's it's something that uh, I think is worth fighting just in principle. The, the you know, the idea of um, constraining speech via ad hominem attacks. And I want to say I'm not totally against all known speech codes. I'm not. I mean, for example, living in a multi-ethnic society is challenging. And our country knows that maybe better than, well, certainly better than most, maybe better than any, but it's very challenging. And, um, you know, for example, for the N-word to be verboten, I, I can, I, I, I can, I can see that. And, and yeah. I can see, um, various, uh, sensitivities we have to be attentive to and, and that, 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 that attentiveness, uh, might logically assume the form of a speech code, as it does in some cases. And, and, and that's okay. So it's not a trivially easy issue, right? Like when have the speech police gone too far? Cause I think there's a place for speech police. But, um, in, in any society, because in part, because if you don't, if you don't keep 
tensions under control, uh, kind of normatively, the the informal sanction of moral approbation and so on and and and, and disapproval, um, then uh, the government may have to do it, and that has perils that are in some ways greater. Greater. Um, so. That's a long way of saying I'm not against the very idea of rules of the road in terms of what you can say, but I think we both agree there's such a thing as overly constraining rules that are not good for the for the world or the country. Yeah, I, I think it's a very hard problem. Uh, because, for example, I think uh, some of the rules which are compelling on their face – the N-word would be one of them. Um, preclude certain kinds of speech that I think warrant to be included within the acceptable um, ambit. Uh, so, for example, ridicule, right. parody, satire, comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine a comedian, I don't know, Richard Pryor or uh, Chris Rock or one of these guys using the N-word in a routine where he's talking about whatever he is talking about or she's talking about the N-word, the C-word, the F-word, uh, the MF-words. These words come in, into play, and in the context, they are more than just merely acceptable. They're at some yeah. level an uh, essential part of, uh, of what the performer is doing. Um, or imagine that, okay, so we got a president that a lot of people don't like. There's nothing wrong with ridiculing him. Right? I mean, well, I, I think, yeah, I think public figures should, should be particularly in bounds as targets. I mean, I mean, uh, that said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, there are things I would not, um, but I, you, you, what, can I ridicule one of my liberal professors who comes out with a, Uh, all too predictable and all too silly uh, pronouncement about whatever the issue might be. And I'm, and you know, and I, I uh, uh, don a mask and a costume. I go out onto public square and I say, this is ridiculous in so many words. And I mm-hmm. laugh at this person and I caricature them. Can I caricature mm-hmm. them? I can't caricature Muhammad, the prophet. I understand that because I value my life. Well, I would go. I, I I would not caricature him for other reasons. There are things I wouldn't say about Jesus. There are. Um, so you object to maybe forms of his Christ? I'm, uh, you know, it's funny you should it's say that. Because it's funny you should say that because I was at the New Republic. I don't. I don't know if this was the period when I was actually acting editor. Uh, but uh, that issue came up. I was acting editor of the New Republic for seven months. The, 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 the piss Christ, if people don't remember, I think it was what a crucifix in a jar that supposedly was full of urine. I don't a know. A beaker really that even. was supposed to be urine. Now that was art. And I, and I think worse still, I think it was federally subsidized art. I think that was the issue. It, yeah, it, that it, was it, the in issue. some sense. That and I said, issue. you know, my position was, look, Maybe the federal government just shouldn't be in the business of subsidizing art. And that was, ta- that was taken as like reactionary. There were people on staff who called me a Philistine because that was something that some conservatives were saying. But, but I, look, I, I didn't, um, I, 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 on these issues, I don't know if you want to call this conservative or what, but for example, when the, when the play, uh, The Book of Mormon hit, hit Broadway, I was uncomfortable with that. I was like, wait a second. We're allowed to criticize Mormons in a way we would not criticize various other groups. I mean, you, there are groups you cannot imagine doing that play about. 
And I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big ridiculer of religions to say the least. So that's, um, and, and now as for what speech code should apply, I don't know. I just encourage people not to do it. It's, it, it just rarely, I think it rarely has good effects. I think it creates more fundamentalists than it, you know, yeah. cures, if that's the right word, which fundamentalists would say it's not. Um, but, uh, so there's all that, you know, on ridicule though, on, you know, it depends. I, I, you know, I couldn't help but thinking of Don Rickles. Do you remember Don Rickles? Yeah, I remember him very there's well. There's a guy who would be on national TV and this probably didn't happen often, but he'd start picking on people in the audience and he'd see a black guy and make a joke about watermelons. I mean, he, he would, uh, and I think you might defend him by saying, you know, one, one complicated thing about ridicule is it's often done as a sign of affection. And I think sometimes people will make jokes that can totally be taken the wrong way that are ethnically charged and they actually mean for it to be a, a, a tool of inclusion, if that makes sense. Have you ever, you, do you know what I mean? The, I think the, I do. There's a kind of intimacy in it. You know, I'm, I'm calling you this uh, name, but I'm doing it out of, uh, in jest or out of love or, you know, right. Whatever. Now that's certainly not always. And only, right. only if we were friends would I dare to venture into this territory. That, that, that is exactly it. It's a way of saying we must be friends. Um, uh, because I'm joking about your being Italian or, or, or you being a cheapskate Scott or whatever. That's right. Yeah. So what do you think about the uh, recent brouhaha over uh, new Department of Education regulations uh, governing anti-Semitism on college campuses and uh, meant, as I understand it, I could be wrong, to counter the uh, boycott, divestment and sanction movement that is trying to bring pressure against the uh, state of Israel for its uh, occupation of the uh, West Bank and so on? I'm against it. The... uh I, I, I want to hear your view very much, and this may lead us into a subject that I'm happy to discuss, which is the intellectual dark web with which you, I think, associate yourself. But the, the, uh, I mean, let me say for people who don't know, so Trump issued an executive order that ostensibly is uh, designed to combat anti-Semitism. I suspect it will actually have the opposite effect, but in any event, um, the it embraces a particular definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, who, who uh, and by the way, the person who is the author of that definition, who or who chaired the committee that came up with that definition, thinks that this is a misapplication of the definition. But the definition, yeah, he wrote a piece for the Times two years ago when I think uh, that maybe the Department of Education was in a different way going to make reference to that something. He was saying this should not be a guideline used on. Um, campuses. But in any event, the, uh, um, it, 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 that definition of anti-Semitism, which this guy says is fine for purposes of monitoring countries and gathering data about where you are seeing anti-Semitism. It's just not the guy, again, the author of it, one of the authors of it is, is saying it's not fine, uh, as a, uh, as a trigger for actual policing. And that's what the Trump now wants to use it as because what he's saying is, if there's anti-Semitism on campuses, we can withdraw uh, federal funding from the colleges. And the definition of anti-Semitism includes certain kinds of extreme criticisms of Israel, such as saying that 
the existence of Israel is racist or um, comparing the policies of Israel to the policies of the Nazi regime that is explicitly singled out as a sign of anti-Semitism. So I'm imagining a case where you've got a panel discussion on campus and say you've got a Palestinian Say it's not a Palestinian. Whoever it is, is really not happy about the occupation of the West Bank. And let's say that they say the Israeli soldiers are using Gestapo tactics on the West Bank. Um, and let me just pause and say I've been on the West Bank and I don't personally compare the tactics to Gestapo tactics. But I, but I think if I described in detail some of the things that happened there, you'd probably agree that one could observe them and uh, invoke comparisons to Gestapo tactics without being motivated by anti-Semitism. They, these are these are things that are happening that just in a in a person with an acute sense of justice or something they might say that and just not be anti-Semitic. It just to me is not uh, some kind of clear-cut evidence of anti-Semitism. But my question is: so if there's a panel discussion on co- on a campus and a student just says something about the, quote, Gestapo tactics of the soldiers on the West Bank. Um, according to a reasonably straightforward interpretation of this executive order, Trump could take away the federal funding for that uh, college unless they discipline that student. And to me, that seems like dangerous territory. Um, and uh, I think we agree, Bob. I, I see two areas of potential agreement between us. I'm not a fan of this of this move that the Trump administration is making at all. And it feels to me a step toward thought policing and uh, prohibiting criticism of Israel and of Zionism uh, as being uh, ipso facto a racist or in this case, anti-Semitic expression. Um, And I don't know why it is that if a group of people, God bless them, decide to understand themselves as a nation my withholding of an acknowledgement of that understanding, think the Kurds, constitutes an act of bigotry. It does not. I don't have to live in your world, I would say, to the people who accuse me of bigotry when I fail to get on board with their project. I can have my own views about their project. I may be wrong in my views about their project. I may be unkind uh, without uh, historical sensibility uh, whatever, but I'm hardly a racist for not in signing on to their project, it would seem to me. So that's one thing. The other thing that troubles me about it is that they have to go through this national origin, if I understand the law, uh, 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 avenue in order to include uh, 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 Jewishness and uh, uh, views about uh, Israel within the, uh, the reach of the, of the civil rights uh, regulation. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether that doesn't itself constitute a kind of, uh, of move, a kind of political positioning that ought to be open to criticism. Um, and and I, I say I'm wondering because I don't know. I haven't thought deeply about this. Are Jews a people? Are they a nation? Are they, is that a, is, is it, it, when, I have students here at Brown, they're Jewish. I say something in my classroom about Israel and Palestine. I've offended them because of their national origin. They were born in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah. No. What, this what, is, what is that? You've imported into our domestic laws regulating discrimination against minority groups a specific position about an international issue that's in dispute. Yeah, this is I do think the issue of uh, what kind of group are Jews, religious, national 
racial is at the center of of this. Uh, and actually, this is a, a reminder. Um, uh, I never miss an opportunity to plug this newsletter I put out a few times a month. It's called the Non-Zero Newsletter, N-O-N-Z-E-R-O. You can go to nonzero.org and sign up. But in the last issue, I had just a little two-paragraph summary of this issue that wasn't explicitly judgmental, but but did get into this issue uh, that you've just raised uh, a little bit. And, and the deal is, this executive order invokes Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Title VI does not uh, forbid discrimination based on religion, but on nationality or race. So uh, there's been disagreement over, well, does this executive order classify uh, Jews as a national group or not? It, it it almost it almost does it explicitly, maybe not explicitly. It it kind of d- discusses the issue, but by implication, certainly, if you're invoking Title VI, there is there is the implication that you're viewing uh, Jews as a national group and uh, not just as a religious group. And of course, um, the irony is that this is something that a lot of anti-Semites love to do, right? I mean, they they want to be able to say. Every Jew is loyal to Israel, and this right. is the problem with various things. And and a number of Jews that I know are quite aware of that and resented very much the implication of this executive order that they are a national group. And um, but you're right that that's uh, that's the issue. And 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 in general, my own my own view is, uh, you know. I think the people who want to fight anti-Semitism by constraining speech about Israel are sincere by and large. I I don't think they're just saying, hey, what I really am is pro-Israel. Let's use the anti-Semitism issue as an excuse to give people blowback for criticizing Israel. But so so I'm willing to grant that most of them are sincere. I just think it's a tactical mistake. I think it works in the other way. I I, I think, uh, you know, constraining speech about or trying to constrain speech about Israel, doing that kind of speech policing uh, can engender a kind of resentment that expresses itself in anti-Semitism. Uh, that's, I don't have much empirical support for that, but I, uh, I, I just, it just given the way psych, human psychology works um, and given some things I've seen, I, I think that that's uh, probably the case. What do you want to say about the intellectual dark web? Well, just that. Oh, but let me. I'm sorry. Let me just yeah, yeah. say, I don't identify myself with it. Oh, okay. Never People mind. out there identified me with it. I was just sitting over here blogging heads, minding my own business, you know, doing my podcast. Yeah. And then there are people like Megan Down, the uh, writer, uh, whom I know you know, uh, who has Not personally, who dis- but she, yeah, she discovers the nuance and the complexity of the thinking at uh, Glenn and John, uh, John McWhorter, the Glenn you, Show. You guys had a big impact on her. Evidently, and she's uh, you know she's she's got a, a book out and she's discussed it on. Uh, hey, have you had her on? I have. Show? It just hasn't okay. posted yet. It's in the queue. Okay. Okay. Um. Uh. uh sorry. Go ahead. But yeah, the intellectual book. No. Now I have heard you and John speak about it. I, I guess what you do is note that you're being identified with it, and you don't exactly seem to mind. I guess that's, that's what it. I'd say. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although, so, although I must say, I must say. In a long drive uh, to North Carolina during a summer a couple of years ago, my son was in the car with him, my son, Glenn II. And I had an audio book of Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules. Mm, mm. And I wanted to listen to it. 
And do you know that the kid just blew his top? I mean, he almost tore the door off the vehicle. It was just not going to be possible to listen to George Peterson at the same time with my son being in the vehicle. I, I see great things as- for that kid. <laughs> you that's, say what? That's good. I see great things for him in his future. That, that shows a combination that. of uh, energy and good judgment that I applaud. <laughs> So, no, we have not uh, objected to being associated with uh, the likes of uh, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and uh, these uh, yeah. these characters. Although I think people are only saying it because uh, John and I have been saying things about race that uh, are in a way not dissimilar from some of the intellectual mm-hmm. dark web figures uh, cutting across the grain of the accepted sensibility in, amongst the elite uh, opinion makers. Yeah, I, no, what I was going to say was, and actually, uh, I, I gather we're, we'll eventually get around to, uh, I have two things this, well, kind of two things that are related to say about the intellectual dark web. Yeah. Uh, one of them, one of them is not original. That's the one I'll say now. Um, and they, uh, the other one I actually first, well, came to mind in listening to your, uh, recent conversations about the Trayvon Martin case. Which we'll get and, to. Which we'll get to. Uh, but this one is just that, you know, a, a, the intellectual dark web, it seems to me, likes to think of itself as, in a sense, transcending ideology. Not that, not that they, the people who constitute it don't have ideologies, but they think that, like, what the intellectual dark web is about is about opposition to speech policing, uh, support for free thought, um, and so on. One long-standing critique of that, either implicit or explicit claim, uh, it comes from, I guess you could say, the Glenn Greenwalds of the world, uh, who would point out that, um, the people in the intellectual dark web, um, seem, uh, more eager to fight some kinds of speech policing than others. So, uh, for, they seem, for example, more forgiving of, say, uh, Islamophobia, more def- defensive of people who have been accused of that, and, and and a number of people in the intellectual dark web have, yeah, right, yeah, Sam Harris, uh, Ben Shapiro, and so on. Um, yeah. Then is the case with say anti-Semitism, and and uh, uh, this is the Glenn Greenwald critique, and you know, out of curiosity, with that in mind, and and actually also knowing that I was going to be talking to you, and some of these issues might come up. Um, when this, uh, executive order, uh, was issued, I, I just went and checked out some of the Twitter feeds of people in the intellectual dark web. And I said, well, if, if Glenn's right, Glenn Greenwald is right about this critique, um, I guess you won't find many people in the IDW standing up and opposing what could be construed as an attempt by Trump to constrain speech on campus. Clearly. And uh, it, it wasn't a huge sample. I just looked at four or five Twitter feeds. But the only references to it I saw were on the other side of it. I didn't see anybody like clearly, uh, explicitly embracing it. But for example, Barry Weiss, who kind of wrote the definitive piece on the intellectual dark web by way of embracing it in the New York Times. Yeah. She, she tweeted, uh, to somebody arguing that, see, it doesn't define Jews as a national group. So, so in a way was defending, uh, or at least pushing uh, against the, 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 the blowback, the pushback against the executive order in a, in a certain, um, sense defensive. But I couldn't find anybody 
this this to me seems like one of the more clear-cut efforts to constrain speech and i'd like to know has anybody in the idw as of whatever uh today is the 17th of december um uh, have they pushed back against it? It, it, it? This is one criticism of the IDW is that actually they do have an ideology, which, by the way, is fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with ideologies. Uh, it, it's just if your claim is that what you represent is trans ideological, but on close scrutiny actually has uh, an ideology implicit in it, then let's be clear about that. That's all. Well, you may be surprised to know that I agree with you about the fact that the iconoclasts who have uh, self-branded as IDW have an ideology. Um, oh, by the way, I just want to note, you did hear me, if I'm included in the IDW crowd, well, this, uh, speak yeah. against the Trump order. You have the option of falsifying my hypothesis by <laughs> retroactively claiming membership at this moment. Yes. Well, here's what I want to say. I've been having this ongoing discussion with Jonathan Haidt, you know, uh, at NYU, the psychologist. And, yeah, I know John. Uh, the, uh, the progenitor of the uh, Heterodox Academy organization, which is a group of us, um, you know, academics who are self-declared proponents of intellectual and ideological diversity being enhanced on campuses. And John and I have been having this argument, um, friendly argument. I'm on the board at Heterodox Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the nature of the argument is I want to say, you know, there are two levels of discourse. One of them is about substantive issues where ideologically ideo, ideology matters, left and right stuff matters, taxes, cultural things, guns, family, religion, um, what in the race, from, you know, um, where, uh, your, uh, commitments, your philosophical commitments, your partisan, uh, uh, commitments about values and what should the state be doing and, uh, what's the right way to order society are pertinent. That's one level of discourse. Another level is about, will they let me say my opinion when it comes time for my opinion? Does Charles Murray get a pie in the face when he shows up on campus? Are they shouting me down and editing me out of the whatever, which is about procedure, about process, about form. And I perhaps inappropriately, but this is my view, and I I respect John, think he's too focused on the latter and not enough on the former. Too much about let's make the rules so that every voice is heard and not enough about the fact that those people who are actually running the institutions are wrong. Okay, I want to say they're wrong about affirmative action. It's it's not that I can't criticize affirmative action without having um, my life being made unpleasant by people who don't like my view. (laughs) It's that they actually are in control of the institution and they're making the policy and the policy about affirmative action is wrong. So you want that to be an official position of the Heterodox Academy? No, I know it can never be because the Heterodox Academy understands itself. Its raison d'etre is to avoid taking positions like that so as to maintain its credibility on the process argument. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying the harm that's being done, you know, in my humble opinion, is, I don't know, 70% substance and 30% process. And I hate that we forbear from engaging the substantive disputes on behalf of maintaining our credibility, we don't want anybody to think that we have an ideology. But of course we have an ideology. 
but they, fact, don't dis- they don't discourage individual members of the Heterodox Academy from arguing against affirmative action, do they? No, no, of course not. Yeah. Of course not. Okay. Of course not. Um, and they would they would say that the the emphasis on the process side is a way of making room for that. Yeah, they would say. Uh, and when you get down the cases, it's uh, uh, well, maybe all I'm doing is revealing myself to be more ideological than Jonathan Haidt is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I I I think uh, I think John is ideological. Uh, possibly more than he talks about. Okay, but, then um, more openly and honestly ideological, perhaps, is what I want to well, say. I think maybe that is what you're saying, is let's admit it, there's no such thing as a non-ideological entity in this universe. I think that is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. No, but, I, 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 I kind of agree, and um, you know, I did a piece in Wired about uh, Sam Harris uh, arguing that what seemed to me to be at least an implicit claim by him that he was for some purpose that he was uh more aware of his tribalism and closer to being able to transcend it than some folks i i i kind of took that as an excuse to try to argue that he's his actually tribalism of various kinds enters his uh his discourse and his psychology and in various ways and, and i i don't i don't i don't maintain that i'm not the same uh but but what tribe, does, to, what tribe does Sam belong to? I actually don't know. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, the issue, I I, I don't want to, it's been so long since I wrote the piece that I don't want to. Um, yeah. Uh, I, what I was arguing was that there were various, I was arguing that there were various cognitive biases at work in him, as in all of us, that could be seen at work when he talked about Islam being the problem when he uh, when he talked about Israel Palestine when he talked about particular issues so I I guess I would say the I mean it's kind of the new atheist tribe it's kind of the new atheist ideology um, being one that first of all sees religion as the problem in a way that I don't I just I think that's that's just uh, a confused way of looking at causality in kind of human affairs to think that the doctrines, I mean, you could almost, well, I don't, I, I needn't get too far into this, but, uh, there was no, there was no answer in my piece to the question of what, of what tribe Sam belongs to. The point was just that bias, ideological bias, I, I argued, was at work in him in various subtle ways, that it's at work in all of us, uh, and we should all admit it, uh, but try to transcend it. That's fine. This is a little bit off, uh, off the beaten path, but I was in um, Israel last spring uh, on a um, ex- uh, visit that was organized by uh, Walter Russell Mead. You know who I'm talking about? The uh, writer of um, yeah, I know Policy. Walter a little. I, I, I and I'm trying. I, I think I can guess the ideological drift of this particular uh, thing. But go ahead and tell. Well, us. it was very friendly to the Zionist project, of course, and and uh-huh. but we did spend time in Ramallah, and we met a number of Palestinians at high levels, academics, and political people, um, and uh, uh, people on the street. Uh, but we we spent most of our time uh, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And it, it was definitely friendly to the project, the Zionist project, as, you know, the uh, whatever. But it, it was also, um, for me, at a personal level, it was it was just very uh, powerfully uh, uh, evocative and 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 moving. I mean, moving maybe is not the right word. I saw such despair and defeat in Ramallah. Hmm. I saw such hopelessness. 
I saw such confidence and, and near unanimity would be too strong, but there was definitely a, a, a convergence of view uh, amongst the range of people. I didn't talk to far left Israelis, but I did talk to people who would have been, you know, in the peace movement uh, 10 years ago, but who were, who have, have, uh, have moved a, a fair amount. And we talked to parliamentarians, we talked to academics, we talked to uh, public officials. Um, and uh, there was confidence and there was a, I had a feeling of creeping annexation. I visited mm-hmm. Gush Etzion, uh, uh, one of the settlements that's built into the side of a hill, man. It looks like a, a city of 100,000 people over there. I mean, those people aren't going anywhere as far as I can tell. And you can look across the valley and you can see the Palestinian villages, I mean, uh, just on the other side of, I mean, you could throw a stone and you could hit them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, I came out of there thinking that um, if I were a Palestinian, I would, I would be in profound despair and, and, and feeling like I don't know which way to go. I mean, I, you know, the Jews well, are in control of that situation and, and, and they're calling the shots. Was this your first time in Israel or, or your first time in my West first Bank time or? was my first time in quite a few years. I had been there in 1987 previously and in 1979 before yeah. that. So it had been near 30 years since I'd been in Israel. Yeah, I was there about, I've been there twice. I was there about nine years ago and I went on a tour a very different ideological cast. The main tour guides on the West Bank was a guy from a group called Breaking the Silence. These are former soldiers in the IDF, former Israeli soldiers, yeah. who decided that the occupation has to end. And um, and so they were our guides. So they show you things like you go to Hebron, and they're like, okay, see this nice paved street? This is where the Jews can walk. See that rocky path up there? That's where the Palestinians have to yeah. walk. And, um, you know, you see things like that. And, you know, and again, I was saying, you, you, you know, if, if you go to the West Bank, you can be provoked to say things that might sound extreme that would be motivated by something other than anti-Semitism, just by, you know, uh, just a, just a sense of justice. And, and who knows? Yeah. Maybe if I had enough background, I'd have a different view. And maybe, uh, you know, it truly is vital to the, uh, security of someone or other, but, uh, you know, to, to be this heavy handed with policing. But the point is, is just to get back to that other point. Uh, it's not a crazy thing to have an extreme reaction to a number of the things. Um, you see, you see these guys in breaking the silence are, they were so impressive because it, uh, they really were working. It seemed to me to actually give me both sides of the story to the, you know, the extent that was possible. I mean, in other words, they were against the occupation, but they did do a good job of conveying why Israelis feel threatened, feel fear, why some of these policies are driven by fear. Um, but, uh, that was, I came away there thinking, oh man, all this talk about a two state solution. There was a time when that made sense. It's just too late. It ain't going to happen. The, the settlements that are so profusely embedded in the West Bank, they are connected by roads, uh, that almost no Palestinians who live in the West Bank are allowed to drive on. And so Palestinians are increasingly encircled by, you know, it's just, you just can't unscramble the egg or the omelet or whatever the metaphor is. And that's, you know, you said if you're Palestinian, you wonder which way do you go. Uh, more and more Palestinians are thinking, 
okay, one state solution. Right. The question is what kind? And and right. what they would tell you is either it's going to be an apartheid state in a pretty literal sense, or it's going to be a whole new, or it's going to be uh, in effect non-Zionist probably because if you if you allow the Palestinians of West Bank to vote, you're I don't think you're quite to the point where them combined with the Palestinians in Israel proper, who of course have Israeli citizenship, um, would constitute a majority. But obviously, you got to be talking about a very different kind of situation if you give them. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a it's that's a, my it's, sense of it as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, a few minutes left here. Maybe we'll talk about Trayvon Martin. Okay. So let me tell people if they don't know that uh, John McWhorter and I at uh, the Glenn Show have had a couple of conversations about uh, an expose documentary film by a filmmaker named Joel Gilbert called The Trayvon Hoax, which alleges that uh, basically George Zimmerman was railroaded in uh, 20, uh, 2013 in his trial for the killing of Trayvon Martin. And that, uh, a, uh, witness, uh, identity switch hoax was perpetrated on the court and on the American people in the process of that, of that trial. Uh, you can refer to our uh, conversations, John and I, uh, that were recently posted at the Glenn Show for more about that. Uh, but the question arises as to how one deals with, um, uh, the, uh, uh, statements and claims that are made by people in the public square when we know that these people have a, a ideological and political identity and uh, we have reason to think that they might not be uh, unbiased. And Joel Gilbert is a conservative without any doubt and we could talk some about other things that he's done. I'm happy to do that. Uh, they do give one the feeling that he is he and Dinesh D'Souza, if they don't know each other, ought to know each other. <laughs> I think like that because they're in the same business, uh, which is tearing down uh, the Democratic Party and the Obama presidency and whatnot like that. And uh, uh, why would John and I take such a thing seriously? And worse than that, why would we besmirch the uh, wonderful reputation of bloggingheads.tv by having such conversations on our platform? And I just want to invite you to comment on that. Okay. Well, thank you. Um yeah, uh, let me start by saying you, I, I mean, I actually, I've now seen pretty much the documentary. I'm not gonna say it's, 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 uh, I'm not gonna say I, I have, I paid close attention to every little, uh, a bit. There was some, some stuff that seemed uh, a little yeah. tangential that I fast forwarded through, but, um, yeah, but, uh, before I talk about the documentary, uh, you said you're happy to talk about his background a little more. And I think, you know, anybody going into the, the documentary, um, should be familiar with it. You, you and John pointed out that, um, uh, in your first conversation, he has been on Alex Jones's show. Alex Jones, of course, the notorious conspiracy theorist who for a long time was trying to convince people that Sandy, Sandy Hook massacre hadn't actually happened. It was faked. Um, it was a hoax. Uh, he finally, in a court case, I think, um, conceded that it was real. But Alex Jones is uh, kind of trouble. I, I, I think, uh, yes, Gilbert has been on the show a number of times. I gather, having done a little more research, he's actually uh, guest hosted it. Yeah, he's guest um, hosted it. And, and, and he's done, you mentioned the uh, Dreams from My Real Father, the documentary in which he claimed that Obama's real father was some uh, communist, not the guy Obama says is his father. Um, that uh, 
he, in addition, uh, I guess in 2010, put out something called Part McCauley, or Paul McCartney Really Is Dead. That was his documentary, The Last Testament of George Harrison. He followed that up with a, a documentary called Elvis Found Alive. Um, he has since, apparently, apparently shortly before the Obama stuff came out, he said those were mockumentaries, but actually I, I, I've seen a 2010 interview in which he's clearly, they were billed as documentaries at the time, and he is defending it as a documentary in, in 2010. So, and then there are various, uh, you know, problems that have been found with the Obama thing. So with all that as background, and I think, I mean, one reason that matters is in the documentary, and I'm about to say something kind of kind about it, so uh, bear with me, <laughs> but in the documentary, there are, or at least kind about you. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, At uh, this point, I'll take it. In the documentary, there are a number of cases where there's like a short segment of somebody speaking, and he interprets it one way and tells us what the right interpretation is, and... I know there was more context to it, and it could be that he's right about what it means. It could be that when the uh, um, the attorney for Trayvon Martin's uh, mother um, says uh, we pressed her or we pressed for a statement or something, he's saying that that means they coerced her. Maybe it could well mean something else. Yeah. There's a number of cases like that or when the witness who – again, the premise is that – a witness was swapped yeah. that the, the 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 girl who was uh actually talking to Trayvon uh on the phone shortly before his death got cold feet yeah and they swapped in her half sister <clears throat> Rachel Gentel I think is the name that's correct and so they've got her saying another clipped thing is I feel guilt and well okay but it's not clear to me what about what uh, and he's and he's saying that you know it's guilt because she know blah blah, yeah. blah so with all of these kinds of things i do think the established credibility of the director matters i don't i don't think that his history does him a favor here uh, to in the eyes of the viewer now uh, and there's a lo- there's a lot of cases like that now all that said i would say uh, having watched uh the whole thing I would say the the claim uh, about the witness swapping, at a minimum, warrants further investigation. And the reason I say that is because it seems to me, and again, I'm not saying it's true. Yeah. I'm just saying that for um, for this documentary not to mean it warrants further investigation would mean that Joel Gilbert has. Uh, either fabricated or misrepresented evidence on a pretty significant scale, right? Like the whole thing about the address of the two houses, the, the, um, the phone records, whose phone, you know, there are a lot of things that together give you pause. And, and if, if, if our journalistic system is working as it should, then there should be a reporter somewhere in Florida who says, I'm going to follow up on this. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, there are, there are still some weird things about it. Like, uh, uh, you know, like the two voices that supposedly aren't from the same person. Well, given the two snippets, we won't get into the details, but it did kind of sound like that, but why not take the whole thing to a voice expert? I mean, um, he took the handwriting to a handwriting expert who, who again, ha- just says a couple of things tightly edited. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure, but, 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 um, now the other thing I'd say is, 
the stakes of this are not as high as they would have been if uh, George Zimmerman had been convicted. Yeah. Because after all, the witness, whatever it was, if there was witness tampering, witness swapping, it failed. Yeah. That's their side did not win. Uh, the other thing is the stakes will be higher if it turns out there is prosecutorial misconduct. I don't think he's alleging that. I, I don't, I, I think, I, I think it, it's possible that the prosecutor, which presented the false evidence, had been deceived by the lawyer for Trayvon Martin's mother, if indeed there was deception at all. Yeah. But, um, so, so the stakes, um, it's not clear that the stakes in the legal context are very high. I know, uh, Joel Gilbert has this uh, premise that the Trayvon Martin case was critical in igniting the series of controversies, Michael Brown and so on. He does. That, that, that's hard to know for sure. I do think, uh, the way he talks about that, I mean, especially at the end, it makes it clear that, as you said, he has a very clear has an agenda. Uh, political agenda and, and almost a conspiratorial one in the sense that, um, you know, the, the view seems to be this was all part of a plot to get a Democrat elected. Well, no, I, I, I would guess if it's true that it happened, it's more like a kind of a lawyer who's a little bit of a hustler and would like more, notor- more publicity and more money. And Trayvon's mo- mother having her agenda and a witness backing out at the last minute and, and that then, then some kind of blah, blah, blah. But all that said, <clears throat> I'm proud of the fact that, that you, you know, that on blogging heads, you, you bring an issue like this, um, up, uh, even, uh, because issues like this should brought up, be brought up. Cause if, if witnesses are swapped, that should be known. I hope someone will follow up on it. The, the, the um, you know, I, I'm not, I, go ahead. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not persuaded yet, but, but, uh, it's a fair thing for you to be discussing. Well, I couldn't have asked for more than that. I mean, I should say that neither John nor I uh, were prepared to say this is true. We both said we don't know whether it's true or not. We said, however, that upon viewing uh, Gilbert's documentary film, we walked away thinking it might be true and it should be looked into. And if it were true, that would be a bad thing for talking about the character of American politics and how susceptible we are to being manipulated by uh actors behind the scenes who present and then the media, you know, narratives get created and they have a life of their own. Michael Brown's hands up, don't shoot, etc. Um, so I, I couldn't have asked for any more from you uh, upon reviewing the material that prompted us to, uh, to, to post uh, conversations on uh, Joel Gilbert's work in the first place than to say, well, it may be sketchy in certain places and certainly he's a sketchy character, but you know, Upon reviewing the evidence that he presents, it's something that ought to be taken seriously and looked into. And it's going to be looked into, apparently, because a big lawsuit has been brought by George Zimmerman against uh, the attorneys and the principals involved, uh, alleging basically what Gilbert alleges in his in his film. Uh, but we got a lot of flack from the Blogging Heads uh, audience about uh, being willing to, well, to take this up. Well, maybe I should give you more. I don't know. But, but I mean, I do want to emphasize that I think – I don't use the word evil about anyone. I try not to. But if I use it about someone, Alex Jones would be in the running. I just think he's a horrible, destructive human. Uh, and I don't know if he understands what kind of fire he's paying, playing with. And by, by the way, actually, I mean, I, I in listening to you and John, if there's one thing I could have interjected uh, – well, there's a few things I might have interjected – but I did, maybe John will talk about this later, the, the, the use of the word 
hoax. I think I'm right in remembering that John used it to apply to everything from this to um, Tawana Brawley to Michael Brown. I think hoax clearly applies to Tawana Brawley and Jesse Smollett, if that's the name. Yeah. There's kind of a hoax embedded within this story. Although when I first heard the name, the Trayvon Martin hoax, I thought they were, given the Alex Young Association, I thought they were saying tra- there was no murder of Trayvon, you know. Uh, but but anyway, that aside, I think Michael Brown is probably a more complicated case if you look at the way that narrative unfolded. Yeah. And, and what I want to say is I think hoax is a very dangerous word that we should use carefully. Um, I mean, I, you know, I recently ran into a guy uh, I didn't know before. I was in a place where I recurringly run into people. He believes that all these school shootings are done by the government. Oh, my God. Yeah, no. And, you know, he's got like uh, an NRA insignia on some of his stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But it does mean he probably owns a gun. So we've got a guy who owns a gun who thinks in my community who thinks um, that uh, yeah. the, the, you, you get it right. That makes me a little concerned. I do. And, 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 and you know this guy has heard the word hoax, and it's a good bet he's heard it from Alex Jones. And uh, uh, anyone associated with Alex Jones to the extent of being his guest host, someone I have grave uh, doubts and concerns about. Uh, but to get back to this point, I would say and it, uh, the word, I think the word hoax should be used um, – just carefully. It applies in some of these cases. Uh, Tawana Brawley, Jesse Smollett. And, and maybe and maybe this one, if it's true, although that's a, it's a slightly smaller kind of hoax in a sense. As I understand Gilbert's motivation, and I don't know him, and I, I, I this is all speculation on my part, but what I'd say is, based on viewing the film and reading uh, a significant part of the book that he produced about Trayvon Martin, and viewing some of his other work, is that he thinks... Um, the country is being pushed into a much more conflictual posture around racial issues, especially around uh, policing, uh, African-American men, uh, the Black Lives Matter portfolio, uh, than is warranted by the objective reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to bet, he'd say the Central Park Five were guilty and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I, if I had to bet, I know what he says about Michael Brown, but I think he would say that much more generally, this idea that, uh, you know, black people are being set upon by police, you have to have to talk with your kid and make sure they're safe when they encounter, is all a hyped up, manufactured crisis by ethnic entrepreneurs who are ambulance chasing around the country, looking for every little case in the country of 300 million people, incidents are going to happen when the circumstances are sufficiently ambiguous that you don't know for sure what happened, these characters come into play and massage it. There's a media that's willing to, in the Zimmerman case gives ample, uh, uh, you know, example uh, of uh, misstatement, exaggeration, uh, uh, a uh, distorted uh, presentation of evidence on behalf of a narrative. And this is the thing that he's against. Uh, so, uh, could, yeah, could, could be, uh, I mean, I think if you ask why are the commenters so, some of them so incensed, they'd probably point out that, well, that might account for this, but then how about the Barack Obama smear where, uh, and apparently in that he, uh, said that Obama's mother had posed for nude photos and then somebody pointed out that, I mean, the, the idea was she'd posed for them in Hawaii, turns out the magazine in which there were photos he, he had taken 
to <clears throat> as evidence. Uh, turns out that magazine had ceased publication two years before she got to Hawaii. So it's like, I mean, I mean, two things. It's I like, didn't know that. Kind of, that that's that's well, interesting. This, this has been reported uh, mm-hmm. online. You know, anything I say, I get it online. Could could conceivably be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But but a like, mm-hmm. what kind of journalistic standards are those? But b, I, I think some of these commenters would say, okay, uh, why? I mean, there's a recurring theme here. Barack Obama's black. Trayvon Martin's black. You know, yeah. uh, th- that's uh, I, I think a, a, a kind of question they would they would raise. Yeah, and have raised, and uh, they've gotten through to me. If anybody's listening, I read those comments, and I'm not unmoved by them. Well, that's good. Some people don't read comments, uh, and it's hard. It's hard because uh, <laughs> yeah, because there's some cheap shots in there, by the way. But uh, you know, yeah, yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> I mean, look, the YouTube, the YouTube commenters like you a lot better than they like me. Yeah, I know. And for that matter, the commenters on site. So we have two video manifestations, bloggingheads.tv, the site, the YouTube channel. I don't think I'm (laughs) super beloved either place, but you, you have played such a role in building up the YouTube channel, uh, following that, you know, you're, you're, uh, highly regarded, which is uh, the appropriate reaction to. They have their own conspiracy but- theories, Bob. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, our technicians had to take down the second of John and I's two conversations about Trayvon Martin in order to do some editing and then put it back up. So there were a couple of hours when it was there and then wasn't there. And I saw four different comments of people saying, "Did Bob Wright uh, cut you back?" <laughs> <laughs> I, de- I deny responsibility. Uh, we were only down for a couple hours and then we were back up again. To the best of my recollection, as they say <laughs> on the witness stand, I played no role in that. Um, so let me, can I quickly uh, t- get back the IDW, the intellectual? Yeah, web? let's do it. New conclude. Okay. So I, I just, when I was listening to you and John, and at the end you were, and I think you invoked the IDW at this point, but also you were saying, you were frustrated because there's kinds of things. This is an example of something you just want to know if it's the case. Right. You, you, you think it's an issue worth exploring and you don't think that you should be vilified for thinking it's worth getting to the bottom of it. Um, and I, I mean, I, 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 and just there's a viewpoint you're expressing. You shouldn't be like thought policed, uh, about it. Um, I just thought to my my stuff on on foreign policy and uh, a case where actually some of the thought policing came in a way from the intellectual dark web or at least from the unofficial magazine Quillette, as you know, is kind of the unofficial magazine in the intellectual dark it web. Is. Okay, so so I had Max Blumenthal on my show, young, edgy guy. Look, I don't agree with him about everything. He's to my left. He doesn't express everything the way I would express it. He's intense. He's edgy. Fine. But we do agree that it was a mistake to arm the rebels in Syria. We did it. Our allies did it. it. It Look, it would have been, it's a bad thing. When a dictator brutally suppresses an insurrection, which, which is what would have happened if we hadn't uh, armed the rebels. But I just think it's a worse thing when you wind up with a huge civil war that kills 300,000 more people than would have died. You have 4 million more refugees than would have died. You can say I'm wrong. You can argue. I don't see how you can call that some kind of like immoral or amoral position to take, right? It's a serious argument. So I have Max on the show. And um, he's been to Syria recently, and and he went there, uh, and 
I think uh, a main part of his point was, look, you know, he, he look, uh, you know, there are a number of like oversimplifications that helped us get in this mess and confusions that helped us uh, fo- feed the fires of this mess. Uh, we, we didn't understand, for example, that these rebels themselves commit atrocities. We didn't understand that actually uh, it wasn't like all the people against Assad. There were a number of people who would much rather live under his control than under the rebels' control. These things are always complicated in that way. So he goes through with video and he says, see, these people, uh, they, they, they prefer living under Assad now that the civil war is abating. Uh, they're glad that the rebels have been expelled. He's making points like this. Mm-hmm. So what do you get? You get suddenly in Quillette, a piece shows up that has a clip of the video of me and Max talking. And the title of it is Tyranny's Mouthpiece. Okay, that's Max. He's Tyranny's uh, mouthpiece. It also attacks a colleague of his named Ronnie Akalik. Uh, and it has sentences like defending the Assad regime as part of Blumenthal's job description these days. I would be surprised if you can find a place where uh, Max says something that is literally a defense of the Assad regime, except except maybe by saying, look, uh, on balance, these people are better off under this regime than they would be under the jihadists that we were supporting uh, who who did a certain amount of torture and slaughter themselves. Again, yeah. the view may be wrong, but I don't think it warrants uh, stigmatizing. Um, here's another uh, a yeah. thing he says. He quotes me saying to Max, I was kind of agreeing, I was reminding Max, I said, Max, one reason you don't get, you get into trouble is you don't do what I do, which is at least say the to be sure thing. Say, Assad is a brutal dictator. I don't approve of him. And Max is so kind of like, you know, young and ornery or whatever, he, he kind of resents having to say the stuff. Uh, so anyway... Um, uh, this guy writes, uh, I forget his name for uh, Quillette. I think it's something like Matt Johnson or something. Um, he says, he quotes me saying, it's like you have to say, I think Assad's a horrible person. And then he says, the author of the Quillette piece says, well, yes. And throughout the conversation, Blumenthal said the opposite. Now, excuse me, uh, correct me if I don't understand the English language, but the opposite of Assad is a horrible person is Assad is a good person. Yeah. If this guy... Or the editor of Quillette, Claire Lehman, I think is her name, can show me Max saying that, then this is a defensible sentence. If she can't, he is owed an apology. Yeah. Now, the the main thing I want to say is that, again, to the extent that Quillette represents the IDW, it has an ideology. And, and it's showing up here. And it's also showing up in a piece called The Islamic Republic Must Fall, whose final sentence is, that's the title. That's Iran? It's a piece. A piece in Quillette, a piece, yeah, meaning Iran, a piece in Quillette, uh, titled The Islamic Republic Must Fall, whose final sentence is, is The Islamic Republic Must Fall. Okay, we get the idea. Now, they're not calling for military regime change, but this is all part of an ideological pattern. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But, but, but A, be intellectually honest when you're, try to be, when you're, when you're critiquing somebody like Max Blumenthal. B, it is ironic to say the least to see this kind of thought policing. And there were some things said about me, by the way, that might be taken to, 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 as an attempt to discourage me from having people like Max on and so on. But, um, it is ironic to say the least that the unofficial magazine of the intellectual dark web, which professes to be against speech police and thought police and, and pro free speech to run a piece that is as shoddy and ad hominem as this. 
and and um, you know, but but uh, and finally, I would just say again, I'm not against them having an ideology. The IDW having, uh, and I'm not saying everyone in the I, in the IDW agrees about that kind of uh, about everything. Um, but there's a kind of a center of ideological gravity that that you know probably encompasses a lot of the the members, and I think we see it. it it's there's a coherence if you if you if you look at the various things we've talked about uh, in the course of this conversation. Fine to have an ideology. I just think you shouldn't uh, pretend you don't have one if you have one. Well, if indeed we are somehow here at the Glenn Show connected uh, in spirit with the uh, intellectual dark web, which is somehow connected with the webzine Quillette. I hope they're listening um, and uh, invite them to respond to you directly or uh, whatever, Bob. Uh, yeah, and I hope I didn't get too animated. The trouble is... Oh, I, you're, you're pissed off, it would appear. And I think well, we, yeah, but you shouldn't appear to be pissed off. You should always seem to be mindful. I wrote a whole book about Buddhism. I shouldn't be like this. But, the, um, but yeah, <laughs> no, I, I really think... Uh, it, look, again, maybe somewhere Max, and I don't know about it, has said... Assad is a good person or has said, uh, there, you know, uh, these, uh, I don't think he committed any atrocities or something like that. I'd be really shocked. And if he didn't say that, then there is some seriously misleading stuff in, in this piece. And, and that's just not, uh, can do, it's just not consistent with the professed ideals of the, uh, intellectual dark web. Do we note it? So I want to thank you, Glenn. Uh, it's been great uh, having the honor of being on your very large uh, your stage. And, and uh, Well, you're welcome, Bob. I'm glad you took time to talk with us here at the Humble Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, your platform. Glad to be associated with you. Look forward to the next conversation. All right. We'll, we'll see you then. Take care. Okay.